Well, good morning, Genesis Church. Uh, for those of you that are new or visiting, my name is Jerry. I am the campus pastor here at Genesis Carmel, and I want you to know that that's a really important part of what we do because we do believe that parents are the primary disciple makers in the lives of children, but we also believe that as a church family, we have a role to play. And so family commissioning is a really important part of what we do, and we have several families across our two campuses uh, that are participating in this today. So that's really exciting for us. Um, my wife, Casey, and I, we have four kiddos of our own, and so we like to try to stay engaged in their life uh, as best we can, as often as we can. And uh, a week or so ago, we were eating dinner together, like we often do, and we were just going around the table, kind of highlighting the day. Hey, what was the high and the low of today? And made our way around to my eight-year-old daughter, Kate, and she started talking about math class. How many of you like math? Kate does not. Kate does not like math. And she was like, oh, daddy, I don't like math class. And the moment she said math, this is what my, my wife did. She was like, oh, math. And she said, this is what she said. She said, Jerry, I don't know what's up with this new math stuff, but it is so complicated that I don't understand it. And I don't know, I don't know how to help our kids. Now, my wife and I, we are not math whizzes. We don't claim to be math whizzes, but we have yet to meet a single parent that would say, oh, new math is wonderful. It makes so much sense. And I have yet to meet a student that can explain it to me in a way that makes sense to them or to me. Okay. And, and I remember like I was a child of the eighties. I remember learning math, the basics of math in the mid eighties with basic things like flashcards and multiplication tables. And that seemed to work well for me and our generation. I know that makes me sound really old, but there's just some about this new math that doesn't add up, right? And yes, I'm trying to be punny, but it just, there's something about it that's making it really complicated, right? And so when my kids have questions, I say, guys, I don't know. I just go check out YouTube. I don't know how to help you anymore. You're, you are beyond, you're beyond my help. Now, I don't know when or how this happened, but somewhere in the last 20 or 30 years, somebody somewhere hijacked the basic principles of math, right? I don't know why they thought that was a good thing, uh, but it's, it's become really frustrating and, and hard for kids to follow, hard for parents to follow, and it's frustrating for us. But here's the reality. It's not just the basics of math that have been hijacked. I'm sure you've noticed in our world today, there are lots of very basic principles, things that we've always believed or thought to be true that just make sense, but now they're up for debate or they're completely under attack. And in the midst of the chaos, here's the problem. Those of us that follow Jesus, it's really easy for us to get sucked into this vortex, isn't it? And to try to figure out, well, what do I believe about that? And what, what is true about that? And, and why is that right? And so the problem is, as we, as we try to engage in these things, it's easy for us to drift away from what Scripture says, from the, the things that, the, the basics that we've been taught, the basics that Scripture teaches us. And instead, we get caught up in all these other things. And before we know it, we're like, well, well who is God? And, and who is Jesus? And why did he come? And is it really necessary for us to obey this and, and to follow his example? And so... What I want to do today, I want to look at two passages of Scripture from the New Testament that are going to take us back to some of the core essentials. When we talk about family commissioning and, and raising our, our children to know and love and follow Jesus, these passages are passages that we need to revisit. Or, or if you have grandkids or you're just starting in your faith journey, these two passages are so important to what we believe. Now, many of you know this as a church family, we've been reading through scripture from the very beginning, from the beginning of the year till now, reading it and studying it every week. And these two passages that I'm going to share with you are part of our daily reading this week. They come from the book of Colossians and Philippians. And so if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to Colossians chapter one, Colossians chapter one. Now in Colossians one, this is not a church that the apostle Paul helped to start. He had never met the people in the first century city of Colossae, but he had heard 
that there were some philosophers. There was a specific philosophy that had started to infiltrate that church. It was called Gnosticism. And uh, basically, the Gnostics of that day, they had become dissatisfied with what they felt was the unrefined simplicity of Christianity. So for whatever reason, the core essentials of our faith, I'm trying really hard not to move so that ring doesn't happen. Do you all hear that? Okay, I'm trying really hard to not move, but I talk with my hands when I move a lot. So I'll try to stand real still. For whatever reason, the core essentials, they were like, oh, we don't need that. Like faith in Jesus alone, that's, I don't know, is that really necessary? So instead, what they tried to do, they were trying to convert Christianity to a philosophy. So it would mesh well with other philosophies and it would just be easier for people to live that out, right? Um, the problem was they also taught that this philosophy, it, 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 it required special knowledge that not everyone had access to. And so you can see how this would be really dangerous. They were getting away from faith in Jesus alone and they just wanted to make Christianity more palatable. Now, I see some of you nodding along with me and maybe you're thinking, well, that's ridiculous. Like who would ever fall for that trap? Who would fall for that scam? Well, I want you to just think about the status of the church today, specifically the church in the United States. Can you think of any philosophies or agendas that have started to infiltrate the church that are causing lots of strife and chaos? Can you think of any philosophies that have crept into the church that have clouded our view and trusting in Jesus alone for salvation, but also they've distracted us away from following his example of love for our enemies, even if they don't believe the way that we believe? Are there any agendas that come to mind in our world that have made their way into the church that are leading to division among those of us that claim to have unity in Jesus as our Savior and as our King? Is anything coming to mind? Let's get a little more personal. Have any of us been tempted to put our hope in a certain social movement or a political party? And we've been fooled into thinking, oh, this one person regardless of which side of the aisle you're on. That one person has all the answers. And if, they, if we can just get them in office, everything is gonna be fine. I think we've all been tempted to fall into that, to that chasm. And so things like politics and theories about sexuality and race, they are continually challenging the way that we approach and engage the world around us. And this isn't a new thing. From the moment the church was formed over 2000, or almost 2,000 years ago, there have always been outside philosophies and ideas that have crept in and they have tried to erode the very basics of what we believe to be true about who God is and why Jesus has come to save us and to rescue us. And that's why in Colossians chapter one, the apostle Paul wrote these words. He was trying to refocus them on what they believed to be true about who Jesus is. And so as we read these words today, my prayer is that it would be a reminder for us of what we believe and why. This is what the apostle Paul writes about Jesus in Colossians chapter one, verse 15. He says this, the son, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together and he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in him, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now, the more I have studied this passage of scripture for the last few weeks, the more I am convinced, I am convinced of this, 
those words are more significant and they have greater spiritual value than we could ever imagine. For starters, many New Testament scholars believe that those, that passage we just read was a hymn or a spiritual song that the early church would sing together. You know why they sang it together? It was a reminder for them of who Jesus was and in the unity that they had. It was a reminder of what they believed to be true. Not only that, but many scholars agree that Paul, Paul's description of Jesus in this verse is among the most important passages in all of scripture because it teaches us a very important idea, a very important spiritual truth. And it's this, Jesus is the very embodiment of God. Jesus is the very embodiment of God. So what does that mean? Well, in layman's terms, maybe an easier way to think of it is this, Jesus is literally God in the flesh, literally. The writer of the book of Hebrews affirms this in Hebrews 1.3 saying this, the son referring to Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So pay attention. The writer of Hebrews isn't just saying that Jesus is a reflection or a symbol of God's glory. He literally radiates with God's glory. You know why? Because he's God. That's who he is. That's who he's always been. And so in verse 15, Paul tells us this, the son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn. Pay attention to this word, the firstborn over all creation. Now, if you're like me, if someone were to ask you, what does that mean? I'm guessing that you would say it's the firstborn child in a family. I am the oldest of four. I am the firstborn in my family. My son Jude is the oldest of our four children. He is our firstborn. Now, when we think of this word and we think of Jesus being the firstborn over all creation, we might be tempted to think, well, that must mean he was the first human that God ever created. But that is not what Paul is talking about here. In an Old Testament Hebrew context, the word firstborn was used to indicate someone that was of first in rank or honor. And in Psalm 89, verse 27 in the Old Testament, firstborn, the word firstborn was used as a code word to God's coming and promised Messiah. So when Paul refers to Jesus as the firstborn over all creation, he is not saying he was the first to ever be created. He is saying it's a title that tells us that Jesus is, has highest honor up here and everything else, everything else is way down here. It speaks of his supremacy as God. And then in verse 16, Paul says, here's why he's supreme. Verse 16, for in him, all things were created, things in heaven and things on earth, things that are visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Now there's a variety of false religions that try to diminish Jesus's divinity and his authority. Jehovah's Witnesses teach that Jesus was created by God. And Paul says, that's not true. Paul makes it very clear right here. Jesus has created everything, visible and invisible, physical and spiritual. There's nothing that's been created that Jesus hasn't already created. And then in verse 17, he says this. Paul says, Jesus is before all things, and in him all things hold together. We literally just sang a song that was based on this idea. Paul doesn't leave anything to the imagination for us. He declares the eternal nature of who Jesus is. He's always existed. There's never been a time when Jesus hasn't existed. In fact, Jesus created time. Now we could spend weeks unpacking every word in every verse from Colossians 1, 15 through 20. But what I wanna do next is take you to another passage of scripture in the book of Philippians. Now the book of Philippians is located right in front of Colossians. Okay, so go to Philippians chapter two. And here's what's interesting about this passage of scripture. It was also a hymn 
a spiritual song that the early church would sing. Now, the church in Philippi, actually, the Apostle Paul helped to plant there. And he was writing to his friends. And we have this recorded for us as the book of Philippians. And I'm going to read it for you. And you're going to notice right away, it reads a lot like Colossians chapter 1. It talks about the supremacy of Jesus. But then it turns a corner. And instead of just talking about his supremacy, it tells us that at some point, Jesus willingly set his supremacy as God aside. Look at this. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ. So right away, Paul says, I want you to pay attention. If you follow Jesus, he is our example for life. And everything I'm getting ready to tell you is a reminder of how we should live. So he says this, Jesus, who being in very nature God, pause. That's Colossians 1, 15 through 20. He was God, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." William Barclay says that the passage we just read is among the most beautiful and the most important that, Paul, that the Apostle Paul ever wrote. If you look back at verse six, Paul tells us this, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider his equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage. In other words, Jesus was totally, he was just like us, but he was totally different than us because we're always looking for the upgrades. We want to take everything to our advantage. And Jesus did something different. He didn't. He didn't feel like he had to do that. Now, in Greek, the phrase to be used to his own advantage is a word picture. It's a picture of someone holding on really tight to a treasure. Now, guys, if you have ever bought an engagement ring, you understand this. I don't know about you, but when I bought my wife's engagement ring and they gave it to me, I was convinced I was going to lose it within the first five minutes. I put it in my pocket and I was constantly patting it down. I put it in the glove box and I was checking it every five minutes to make sure it was there. I would open the box. I thought, surely it just fell right out of the bottom of the box. I was so relieved when I gave it to my wife. Will you marry me? Good. You said, yes. If you lose that, it's on you. It's out of my possession now. <laughs> right? Like it's so valuable. It's so valuable. Jesus's treasure was his status with God. Now, his status with God was not something he worked for or something he had to earn. It had always been true. He's always been God. And so think about this. This should blow our minds. Jesus had equality with God, but he chose not to hold on to it. Some English translations say it this way. He did not consider his equality with God as something to be grasped or to cling on to, which I think is a better translation of this verse. And here's the point that Paul is making. Paul is teaching us that even though Jesus possessed the immense treasure of equality with God, it wasn't something that he felt like he had to hold on to at all costs. Apparently there was something that he was willing to pursue to let go of his equality with God for a short period of time, which should, which should lead us to ask a really important question. What could have been so valuable to him? And just in case you don't know the answer to that, it's you and it's me and it's all of humanity. 
So are you starting to see why this passage is so valuable to our faith? We read it a lot. We quote it a lot. We sing it a lot. It is so valuable to what we believe. Can you understand why the early church would sing this song as a reminder of who Jesus is and his supremacy and his sufficiency? Paul says this in verse 6, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage or something to cling to. And then in verse 7, he says this, rather he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Jesus willingly set aside his privilege of being equal with God for a time so that he could become human. We're trying to climb our way up. Jesus said, let me come down. Let me be like you, but not just human. Paul makes it clear he made himself nothing. Now, again, in the Greek, this phrase literally translated means he made himself of no reputation. We try to get all the reputation. Jesus made himself of no reputation. It can also be translated as he emptied himself. And he emptied himself, if you keep reading, into the nature of a servant. Now, this does not mean that at any point in time, he emptied himself of being God. He's always been God. But I like how David Guzik explains it. He says, Jesus emptied himself into the form of a man, but more importantly, he emptied himself into the form of a servant. And then Paul goes on to explain the significance of this in verse eight. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. I just learned this recently, that Roman citizens were so appalled by crucifixion. It was like a four-letter word. You just didn't talk about it. You didn't say it. It was that awful. So are you getting the picture here? This is one of the greatest mysteries of our faith. Jesus, who was completely and fully God, willingly made the sacrifice to become just like you and I so he could experience every hardship, every challenge. He faced fear for us. Jesus understood the feelings of depression and inadequacy that you and I struggle with. He understands what it means to battle with anxiety. He was like us in every way, but never ceased to be God. But here's the difference between us and Jesus. He never sinned. He never caved. And he did that so that he could die in our place. So remember, he wasn't just human. He was a servant. He was a servant to his heavenly father. He was completely obedient. But he was also, you could say, he was a servant to us. Because he was obedient to the point of death so that through faith in his sacrifice, we could be restored in our relationship with our heavenly father. One commentator refers to this as the sacrifice of incarnation. Incarnation just means becoming human. This blew my mind. I, I knew this, but I hadn't thought of this before. Jesus sacrificed his equality with God to be our sacrifice, our perfect and holy sacrifice. I really like how pastor and author Warren Wiersbe explains the mystery, this mystery of our faith. He says this, in these verses, Paul traces the steps of the humiliation of Christ. First, he emptied himself by laying aside the independent use of his attributes of God. He didn't use his God card. Secondly, he permanently became a human in a sinless physical body, and he used that body to become a servant, and then he took that body to the cross, and he willingly died. Willingly. Didn't fight it. Didn't resist it. Died a punishing death so that through faith in him, we could be restored. And if you're a follower of Jesus, I want to remind you, this is the story of your faith. It's the story of our salvation. It's the story of the redemption of the world and the restoration of all things back to God. And because it's our story, we should celebrate it. 
And we should respond by worshiping, not just by singing, but in everything that we do, with every breath we breathe, with every gift he's given us, with every resource that we have available, we should worship Jesus. And I want you to listen to what the Apostle Paul says in verses 9 through 11. This was Jesus's reward for his obedience. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God our Father. You guys know this, but we are living in a world, we're living in a day and age that gets darker and stranger and weirder and more complicated every single day. We live in a country that has the name United in its title, but maybe has never been more divided. We live in a culture that's losing its mind. We live in a political system that's corrupt and it's eroding right before our eyes. And that all sounds like really bad news. It's really depressing, isn't it? But here's the good news. That's not what our hope is in. Our hope isn't in a four-year presidential term or bipartisan agreements or social movements. Our hope isn't in how much we can make or collect or save away. Our hope isn't even in how long our bodies are going to last on this earth. As followers of Jesus, our hope is in the absolute supremacy, in the complete sufficiency of Jesus Christ as our God and our Savior and as our King. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, my guess is that you've probably heard some of this. And you're like, this is really good. I, I, this is a good reminder. I hope other people are listening. But can I just, I want to share something with you. As I've been writing this, I, I feel like the Holy Spirit has impressed this upon me to share with you. Don't rush past this. This isn't for somebody else. This is for you. This is for me. It's for you directly. This is what our faith is based on. It's been too easy for us to be distracted away from all the things that we want to put our hope in to make our life a little easier. And in the process, we get disoriented in our faithfulness to God. We've been pulled away. And it's time for us to be honest with ourselves and with our Heavenly Father and to admit that we've turned to things like politics. We've turned to things like social agendas for hope. And we, are, we, we just resist the urge to find ultimate rest and joy and satisfaction in who Jesus is. And instead, we chase after all this other stuff that leaves us empty and tired and frustrated and angry and divided. And none of us can afford to, read, to hear these passages and think, oh, that's good, yeah, yeah, yeah. We need to pray that the Holy Spirit, when we read these passages, would peel our eyes and our hearts open and that he would take these things that are familiar and we would stand in awe of what has been done for us so that we can continue not just to have good lives, but literally to live on mission, to raise our kids, to look forward to our grandkids, to make an impact in this community for Jesus. A few weeks ago, there's a family in our church lost someone that was very special to them. Her name was Nancy. And Nancy was a loving mother and wife and grandmother and a faithful friend. She was a wonderful mother-in-law. I got to hear her son-in-law talk about how wonderful she was all the time. And for the last several years, Nancy has struggled with cancer. And this fall, it became very evident to Nancy and her family that her time on earth was limited. Like they, they could tell months, weeks, we don't know. It's getting really, really close. And so she was in, a, in her hospital room in, in, in Pennsylvania 
And, and everybody knew, like, we're just getting really, really close. And her daughter was on one side of the bed. Her husband's on the other. Her son-in-law is FaceTiming in. And they're standing there. And Nancy says to her daughter, will you please help me raise my arm up in there? She has no strength. Like, raising her arm was a big deal. And she was adamant. Like, she wanted her arm up in the air. And they're like, well, gosh, yeah, Mom, we'll do whatever you want us to do. But what, what's going on? And this is, this is a direct quote. This is what Nancy said on her deathbed. I want to raise my arm to the Lord, to the Lord of heaven and earth. She just wanted to worship Jesus in her final moments, not knowing how long she had. And so her family got to watch her worship her Savior. And eventually they put her arm down. And a few hours later, she went to bed on a Monday night. And she passed it sometime early on a Tuesday morning. And I love how her son-in-law explained this to me. He said, <clears throat> she fell asleep like all of us on Monday night. But on Tuesday morning, she woke up on the other side of eternity where she had always planned to be right next to her Savior and her King, Jesus. Now, if you don't think the basics of our faith matter, I think you should rethink it because all of us, we don't know how much time we have left. And that is our story. There will be a day when our life ends and we will enter into eternity. And Jesus says, if your faith is in me, you will rest with me regardless of what you face. But Jesus also said, if your faith isn't in me, if you think life is hard now, eternity is gonna be worse apart from me. And so for those of us that follow Jesus, I just want you, don't rush past these verses. Don't just sing these songs. Don't just pray your prayers. We need to encourage one another daily. We need to pray that the Holy Spirit would move in our hearts and in the hearts of our church in such a way that we would wake up to the reality of how fragile our life is, the beauty of salvation found in Jesus and the hope that we can share with this world. Now, if you're not yet following Jesus, I want you to know, we say this all the time, we are so thankful that you're here, but I wanna be real clear about this. We believe that he is who he says he is. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus said, no one will be made right. No one will enjoy heaven apart from a relationship with me. We believe what the writers of the New Testament say that it is by grace through faith alone that we are saved and rescued from our sins. And so if you have never surrendered your life to Jesus, this is what it looks like. You admit like all the rest of us that you're a sinner. By the way, if you're following Jesus and you're willing to admit you're a sinner, would you just raise your hand? You've admitted that. That's what that looks like. Yes, I have messed up my relationship with my heavenly father. And then you receive by faith his sacrifice for your life. You are adopted into his family. You are filled with his spirit. You are forgiven of your sins and you are given a mission of making disciples and making his name great. If you are interested in starting a relationship with Jesus, come find me after service today. I'll be right down front. I'd love to talk with you and pray with you. But as we wrap up together as a church family, I wanna do something really, really special and a little different. I wanna invite you to stand right now. And I told you, these two passages of scripture that we have studied today used to be hymns in the early church, spiritual songs. Now, we're not gonna sing them together, but I wanna invite you to read them out loud together with me. And don't just read them. Put some emotion in your voice. If you believe that these words are true, if you find comfort in these words and power in these words, then let's let this be our prayer to him today. Would you read them with me? The sun is the image of the invisible God, 
the firstborn over all creation. For in him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him, all things hold together. One more verse. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Let's read this last part loud. This is our celebration. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus, we want to proclaim that we believe that is true. You proved that it was true. And so as we sing to you right now, Holy Spirit, would you move in this room in a powerful way? Help us to get past going through the motions. Help us to get past singing familiar songs and help us to worship you for your absolute supremacy and your complete sufficiency as our God and as our Savior and as our King. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. We're gonna sing a song together and this song speaks to the story of our salvation and our faith. Here's my challenge. Don't just sing it. Worship him in it. Let's worship together.